the vision that God gave to the Apostle John to then be delivered to the church continues. In chapters 8 and 9, we saw trumpets 1 through 6, which represent God's partial temporal judgments upon rebellion and idolatry in the world, in this age. The similarity to the Egypt plagues uh, that those trumpet judgments bear revealed three important truths that we saw last week. God is the sovereign ruler over the world. God will protect and deliver his people. And God will allow time to repent. Not limitless time, but in his grace and his mercy, there is an opportunity for sinners to repent and turn to him. Trumpets 1 through 4 were grouped together, sort of by virtue of an eagle that flew overhead and called, Woe, 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 the prophetic sort of curse, the misery of judgment uh, for the last three trumpets, right? And so the the first four trumpets are all one group, and then the trumpets 5, 6, and 7 are also identified as these woes. And so after each of those trumpets is sounded, the book of Revelation tells us, Uh, And so the first woe has passed or the second woe has passed. And so we've seen trumpets one through six and the first two of these woes. And they indicated an intensifying uh, in hardship from the providential hand of God upon unbelievers. Hardships, including physical suffering and spiritual oppression. And so we turn in chapter 10 to what we expect is going to be the seventh and final trumpet, but that's not what's here. In fact, just like the seals, as the lamb opened the scroll one seal at a time in chapter six through the beginning of chapter eight, there was an interlude, right? We saw the first six seals in succession and then there was a pause and we got this glimpse of the people of God in the throne room, having been sealed with the name of God on their foreheads, indicating that the people of God were protected from the unfolding uh, of the final judgment that was to come. And in the same way, there is this interlude, this pause between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. And again, I've I've tried to demonstrate that the, the trumpet judgments are displaying the same period of time as the seals that were opened in chapter six and seven. Namely, the whole period, the whole age between uh, the ascension of Christ into heaven and his coming return. All right. And so we're seeing another angle on this period of human history in which we live that the New Testament calls the last days. And so in chapter 10 and the first half of chapter 11, instead of the next trumpet, we're basically given the answer to a question that's not explicitly asked. But if there were a question sort of overriding, overarching this chapter and a half, it would basically be this. What is the church doing during this period? Right. So we're seeing in the trumpet judgments, God uh, pouring out his temporal partial judgments on unbelievers in this age. And so the question might arise naturally. Well, what about God's people? What is the church doing while God is sending his warning judgments on unbelievers or on those who dwell on the earth in the age between Christ's first and second coming? What are God's people on earth up to? How are they faring in all of these trials? What does God have for them to be doing? And chapters 10 and 11 
kind of give us a couple of answers to that question. Let me read for you all of chapter 10, verses 1 through 11, and then we'll look together at, at how the text answers that question. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter. But in your mouth, it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. The big idea in this chapter, in answering the question, what is the church doing in this age, while the judgments of the trumpets are being poured out upon unbelievers, is this. The church of Jesus Christ is God's prophet to the nations. The church of Jesus Christ is God's prophet to the nations. And we'll see in here the prophet's mission and the prophet's message. So that's kind of how we'll break this down. Chapter 11 will give another answer to the same question, what, what is the church doing? Namely, the church of Jesus Christ is temporarily persecuted, but ultimately victorious. But we'll come to that next week. So the church of Jesus Christ is to be God's prophet to the nations. I think that's what we see unfolding in chapter 10. The first verses introduce us to uh, an angel, a mighty angel coming down from heaven. And he's a very interesting character, very vividly described. Uh, And like many of the symbols and images in Revelation, there's different interpretations about who it might be or what it might represent. There are scholars and interpreters who think that this angel represents Jesus himself. I think that's unlikely because nowhere else is Jesus called an angel. Angels routinely in Revelation actually deflect worship from themselves. Uh, And so it doesn't seem to me that this is, is Jesus himself. Nevertheless, it is a very powerful spiritual being, right? Representing the the strength of God, the the, the spiritual uh, power and influence of those who serve him in heaven. And so this mighty angel comes down and we get this description of him that is littered, you won't be surprised to learn, with Old Testament allusions, right? I hope you're seeing a pattern in Revelation, by the way. It is steeped in Old Testament images 
and language. And so this angel, we're, we're, we're told, uh, was wrapped in a cloud and with legs like pillars of fire. And perhaps that would remind you of the way that God led the people of Israel in the wilderness. In a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So those images clearly evoke the power and, and guidance of God, of his people, while they were in the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt. It shows a rainbow over his head. And in our day, the rainbow symbolizes something very different than what God intended it to be. When we see a rainbow in the scriptures, we should be reminded of God's covenant with Noah and indeed with all humanity not to flood the earth again. And so it's a, it's a promise. It's a covenant of God's faithfulness and of God's protection and of God's patience. Right. That he would wait, that he would allow opportunity for sinners to repent. Also, more immediately, it invokes uh, imagery from Revelation chapter four, where this vision really began with the throne room. John saw him seated on the throne, namely God, the father. And he was said to be surrounded by uh, a rainbow. And so we have the the imagery of the presence of God and the throne of God, as well as the Old Testament allusion to God's covenant faithfulness uh, to his people and patience with sinners. There are seven thunders spoken of, which are mysterious and remain mysterious. We'll talk about that briefly in just a moment. But I think when it says the voice of the angel called out and when he called out the seven thunders sounded, we're supposed to be reminded of Mount Sinai. When Moses went up the mountain to meet with God and receive his law, it said that there were there was smoke and thunder uh, shook the ground. And so, again, the, the presence of God, the power of God, the holiness of God, all these things are sort of wrapped up in this angelic being in his presence. We're told that his face is like the sun, which does remind us of the way that Jesus is presented in chapter 1, verse 16. And also in Matthew 7, verse 12, during the transfiguration, when Jesus went up on the mountain with a few of his followers and his sort of just for a moment, they glimpsed the sort of heavenly glory of Jesus. And it said his face shone like the sun. And so you have this angel with this vivid, powerful description With lots of Old Testament allusions. And in the vision, he's a really big angel too. Because he's got one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. And it actually says that he raises his hand to the heavens. And so the angel has sort of a physical presence in all the realms that God has created. Right? And so it says when he swears by him who made the earth and all that is in it and the sea and all that is in it and the sky and all that is in it. We also see the angel with a foot in the sea and a foot on the land and his hand raised to the heavens. And so this is a a, a universal global picture here. This angel representing the power of God and the sovereignty of God and indeed his his presence and activity uh, all around the world. But I want you to notice what's in the angel's hand. Verse 2, he had a little scroll open in his hand. And in fact, what we'll start to see here is the, the emphasis on the role of the prophet in this passage. So the emphasis on the role of the prophet. And the first one that we see is this open scroll. 
I think this is a different scroll than the one we saw being opened one seal of time in chapter 6 and 7. For one thing, it's called a little scroll. And for another, I think in the context of this chapter, as we'll see, it has to do with the role, not that Christ himself plays, but that the church is to play. So I think it's a different scroll than the one that unfolds God's sovereign purposes for all of, uh, of human history that we saw in chapter 6 and 7. So he has the scroll in his hand that is open, a little scroll, and I think it represents God's word. It represents the, the, the message of God that he gives to his people and indeed to the world, which we'll see uh, in a few minutes. And if you think about the Old Testament prophets, their, uh, their mission, their role was always to simply receive the word of God and deliver it. That was it. They didn't infuse their own opinions or interpretations. They heard from God and they spoke his word. And so I think that the little scroll that's open in the hand of the angel represents the word of God to his people. And indeed, it doesn't just stop there just for the people to read it. He's going to to give it to John and and tell him to speak it. There's a reference in in verse 7 to the prophets, namely the, the prophets of the Old Testament, as he says, the mystery of God will be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. And so there's an explicit reference to the, the office of prophet, the role of the prophets. The whole scene with the eating of the scroll, which of course is very strange and, and a little bit bizarre to us, is actually uh, an, uh, a repetition of the calling of the prophet Ezekiel. So if you were to look in Ezekiel chapter 2 and chapter 3, you would find this. This is God to Ezekiel. You, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me. And behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me. And it had writing on the front and on the back. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here, eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And then he goes on to speak of the way that it makes his stomach bitter. So this is not new to John. This vision that he sees that is given by the Lord Jesus in Revelation is, in fact, an echo of the calling of Ezekiel. And I think, again, the point of that is to say we're talking about the office of the prophet, the role of the prophet here, which immediately in the context of Revelation 10 refers to John. John is playing the unique role of prophet in that God has given this vision to him and he expects him to then and commissions him to, to tell it to the churches, right? To write down what you see and give it to the churches. But I think it has a broader application than that. And we'll talk about that as we go. And then finally, another emphasis on the role in the office of prophet is the way this chapter ends. In verse 11, John is told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So if you remember the way that Revelation started in chapter one, in the first couple of verses, it says that this revelation uh, was of Jesus Christ, which could mean it was about Jesus Christ or it was from Jesus Christ. Honestly, it may mean both of those things. 
which God gave him. So God gave this revelation to Christ to show to his servants what must soon take place. It says he made it known, that is the revelation, to by sending his angel to the servant John. So there's this progression, right? The revelation, the content of this vision comes from God the Father and it's given to Christ. And Christ gives that message to an angel and an angel comes to John with the message. So perhaps the angel with the scroll in his hand is representative of the angel in chapter one that delivered this message to John. And then he is told to write down what you see and give it to the churches. So this progression, right? The, 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 the signal flow of the message of revelation, God, Christ, angel, John churches, right? And so he's told here again in chapter 10, verse 11, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So again, I think this chapter is all about the role of a prophet. And I don't think it's uniquely about John as a prophet. It's about indeed, symbolically, John representing the people of God on the earth in this age. Let's talk about the prophet's mission. The scroll in the angel's hand represents, of course, in the vision, it represents the announcement, the prophecy concerning the final judgment that's to come. Right, you see in verse uh, 6 and 7, he says that there would be no more delay, and that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. And so the angel is saying the six trumpets that have come before it are done. There is no more delay. The final judgment is coming. So it's a little bit ironic, sort of a literary device, that there's this pause. He says there's no more delay, but indeed then there is a little bit of a delay before we actually see the, the sounding of the seventh trumpet. But again, if we're to take that and to put it into our own day, into our own lives, and understand what God has for us to do and to be, I believe that the, the scroll in the hand of the angel represents the word of God given to his people. The word of God given to his people. So the scroll is God's word to John that he's then commissioned to announce. And I think by extension, the church of Jesus Christ is given the same commission. We've been given the word of God. We've been entrusted with his message, with his gospel and commissioned to spread it. So the the prophet's mission then is all about the word of God. It's simply this. To proclaim his word. The, message, the mission of the prophet is to proclaim the word of God. A couple of ways that that shows up here. The first is, interestingly, it's, uh, it's the sealing up of the seven thunders. So it says, as soon as the angel called out, it said that uh, the seven thunders sounded. And he was about to write what the seven thunders said. And then a voice from heaven, presumably the voice of God, said, Do not write this down. Seal up what the seven thunders said and do not write it. And that's all we know about the seven thunders. Not sure exactly what it entails or what it means. And so perhaps an implicit message in in terms of the mission of a prophet is only speak what God has authorized you to speak. Right? A prophet is not allowed to give his own ideas, his own opinions, advance his own notions. He is only given what God has given him to speak. 
So if it's not authorized by God, don't share it. That's the message. Uh, that's the mission of a prophet in the negative, right? Don't say what God has not authorized you to say. And so I think the most we can glean from this seven thunders mystery is that some things God has chosen not to reveal to us. All right, he could have just left out the whole thing about seven thunders and we wouldn't have been any the wiser for it. But he actually tells us that there were seven thunders that said something that John was starting to write and then he said, no, don't. So we're actually told, hey, there's information here that you're not privy to. Don't you hate that? Don't you hate when somebody says like, oh, I've got something that I wish I could tell you, but I can't. And you're like, oh, then why'd you even bring it up, right? Just don't tell me that you know something and it'll be all better. Here's God kind of saying, I know something you don't know, right? And I can't tell you, can't tell you what it is. And that's actually good for us to know. There are certain things that are in the mind of God and in the purposes of God for the world and for his people in our own lives that he knows that we will not know. He doesn't want us to know, but he wants us to know that we're not going to know it, right? He's telling us there are certain things that are mine that you don't need to know. And perhaps that should provide us actually with some measure of comfort when we're confused, for example, when we're unsure, when doubts creep in, when someone asks us a hard question and we're not sure how to answer it. God simply hasn't revealed everything to us. And so it's okay to say at times, I don't know. I don't believe God has revealed that to us. We don't have to have an answer for everything. Indeed, we cannot have an answer for everything. If there is no mystery, if there is no room in your faith for mystery, for stuff that's like, this is in the mind of God and I don't understand it, then perhaps we've simplified things too much. Perhaps we're not really letting God be God. One of my favorite verses is Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord. But that which is revealed is for us and for our children. We need to have those category differences. God's revealed things and we're, we're obligated to those things, right? So we are authorized and indeed responsible to steward what he has revealed. But when he hasn't revealed it, that's for the Lord. That's his. That's not for me to know. So in the proclaiming of the word of God, there's the negative application of do not say what God has not authorized you to say. And then there's, it's given in the positive in uh, verse 11, where it says, you must prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Now, the Old Testament prophets spoke to Israel, like to God's covenant people, mostly. But also, in many cases, they were sent to other nations and kings to deliver God's message to them as well. One famous example, that is Jonah. Prophet Jonah was sent to Assyria, which was one of Israel's most powerful enemies, which is why Jonah's a little bit hesitant to fulfill that mission. Because you remember when God says, hey, Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city, and deliver my word to it. He doesn't go straight. He doesn't get on the boat to Nineveh, does he? He tries to go somewhere else. Let me get as far in the opposite direction of that as I possibly can. So Jonah's perhaps not the greatest example of obedience to the prophetic commission. But nevertheless, he comes to our mind as a prophet who is given the charge, take my word to another nation, right? To, to, the, to the world at large, not only to the covenant people of God. And John is told in verse 11 that his, his prophesying 
would be about, perhaps even against, peoples and nations and languages and kings. And I think that phrase indicates that the the message that God gives him is not only for the church, but for the world as well. There's a sense in which the word of God is for the world. Indeed, the warnings that God is issuing through these trumpet judgments that we've been seeing are intended as a warning for the unbelieving world to recognize the power of God and the protection of the church and the opportunity to repent. In the context of the seven trumpets, which are God's temporal judgments upon the unbelieving world in this age, it would be appropriate to see this prophetic commission as both for encouragement to the church and as warning to the nations. And so I think the same thing is true of the mission he's given to us, right? Because doesn't Jesus commission the disciples and thereby the church to the nations? Go make disciples of all nations. He sends his people into the world to the nations to steward the message of the gospel. And so the prophet's mission is simply this, to proclaim the word of God, both for the building up of the church and for the announcement to the nations, to the world of coming judgment and of salvation in Jesus Christ. That's the prophet's mission. Well, the prophet's message, we'll get this a little bit more uh, uh, explicitly here in verses 8 through 11. So John is told to take the scroll from the hand of the angel. And so John goes to the angel and tells him to give him the scroll. That might be a little bit intimidating. I'm in this vision and God says, all right, go get the scroll from that giant angel that's covering land and sea and has his hand in the sky and be like, hey, give me that thing. I might be able to like, could I, uh, could I possibly get that from you? Like, uh, I don't know if John's feeling intimidated here or not, but he goes to the angel and he tells him to give him the scroll. And so he goes to the angel and he gets it. And the angel doesn't say, hey, read every word of that. He says, eat it. That's weird. Why would you do that? Why would you tell me to eat this book? What good is it going to do to eat it? Of course, that's symbolism for the, the, the content of the word of God. And the fact that it's going to be sweet as honey in his mouth, but make his stomach bitter, tells us a couple of important things about the word of God and the, the, the message of the church as God's prophets. And in fact, I could see it being the case both sort of personally and prophetically more broadly. So personally, if you think about the word of God being sweet, I think this speaks to us of, of the joy and the beauty of the Bible, the joy of devotion, right? The, 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 the sweetness of hearing from God in his word. When we go to the scriptures, we are confident that God himself is, is there meeting with us and speaking to us. The very spirit of God meets us in the pages of scripture. It's no mere ancient text. It is a living and active word, right? That's what we believe about the Bible. So when we read the Bible, when we read God's word, God himself is meeting with us. He is speaking to us and there is joy and beauty and sweetness there. Talk to any follower of Jesus who's known the Lord for a long time. Hey, what are the greatest sort of experiences of your life with Jesus? Almost always they will say the word of God. Time in the word of God has, has spilled my heart with joy and with sweetness and with comfort and encouragements. 
Psalm 119 verse 18 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. There are wondrous things to behold in the word of God. When you read it and you meditate on it and you study it and and you begin to see connections from one place to another. and, And as Jesus himself is revealed in the pages of scripture, it is wonderful to behold. It is beautiful to experience. So personally speaking, the sweetness of the word of God, I think, has to do with that communion that we enjoy with God when we come to him in his word. Oh, but sometimes it makes our stomach bitter, doesn't it? Because the word he gives us is sometimes a hard word. Because the Bible doesn't always affirm us. The Bible doesn't always make us feel happy or good about myself or or where I am in life, right? Sometimes the word of God convicts. Sometimes it corrects. Sometimes it challenges. It holds up a mirror to our hearts making us aware of sin and darkness residing there. It reveals to us the mind of God, which is often different from our own instincts and inclinations. And so the word of God sometimes makes our stomach bitter because the truth is not always easy to hear. If your reading of the Bible never confronts you, if it never leaves you wrestling with theological thoughts and how things fit together or with things that it points out in your own heart, if it never leaves you feeling uncomfortable or or challenged by God, then perhaps you're not reading it honestly. The word of God often confronts us and convicts us. Hebrews tells us the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cut to the division of soul and and bone and marrow, right? It, it, It sees us. It lays us bare. So the word of God is sometimes a hard word and makes our stomach bitter in that sense. I I attended a a memorial service yesterday for a pastor in the area who had served in his church, small church uh, nearby, but served in his church for almost 50 years. And then he passed away uh, just about a month ago. And uh, and among the people that were sort of sharing testimonies and and memories uh, about him, his, his granddaughter Stood up and she said, you know, one of the one of the, the greatest things that I inherited, you know, from my grandfather is a love of the Bible. And she spoke of her memories from growing up of seeing her granddad joyfully and and persistently reading and meditating on the Bible. Her, her earliest memories of, were of coming downstairs and he was in the kitchen in slippers with his Bible open on the table like that was just a regular scene uh, in, in, in their home. And she spoke specifically of the way that he, uh, that he approached the, the Bible with the sense that when he reads the Bible, he's hearing from God, right? So he's hearing God's voice in the scriptures. And she said that he rejoiced in that reality. And I wrote this down. Even when it was uncomfortable or when it conflicted with what he wanted or thought. And I thought that is a good way to approach the Bible. Sometimes the word of God doesn't. Uh, confirm us in our opinions. Sometimes it challenges them, right? Sometimes it's what we find God saying to us in the scriptures makes us uncomfortable. Sometimes it, it conflicts with our desires or our hopes, but it's always sweet even when it's hard, right? So there's a sweetness and a bitterness in the way that the word of God comes to us just personally. But you can also see this prophetically in terms of the mission 
that God has given to his people to take the word of God and deliver it. I'm going to start with the bitterness here. Because in the context of Revelation chapter 10 and the unfolding of these trumpet judgments, the word that he's given is a hard word, isn't it? When he says you're going to prophesy about people and and nations and languages and kings, I don't think he's saying you're going to go to the nations and the peoples and the kings and say, hey, you guys are doing a great job. Just wanted to say God is happy with you. That's not the message. The message is, bro, judgment is about to fall. And if you don't repent and turn from your sin and trust in Christ, you are dead and you will be damned for eternity. That's what the message is. That is not an easy message, is it? That is a hard word. That is a bitter word. But indeed, the message that God has entrusted to the church begins with bad news. It must. Good news doesn't make any sense without the context of bad news. I remember the evangelist Ray Comfort using the illustration of being on an airplane. And if someone were to come to you and say, hey, I have a free parachute for you. You sort of be like, we're going to land in Dallas in an hour. Why do I need a parachute? No thanks. You know, it doesn't make any sense. But he said, but if I told you, hey, the pilot just told me that in about an hour, we're actually going to all have to jump from this plane. Something's wrong with the landing gear. It can't land. We're going to have to jump. And then I said, and by the way, here's a free parachute. Now you're going to receive that a little bit differently. Oh, okay. Well, if I have to jump, I definitely want a parachute. Thanks for providing the parachute. It's a little bit like that. And when we come to an unbeliever, when we go to an, an unbelieving world and we say, there's, forgive, there's salvation in Jesus. There's joy in Jesus. There's life in Jesus. People go, so what? I'm fine. Right? It doesn't, your life and joy in Jesus, is, that's great for you. But why do I need that? But the word of God, the message that he's entrusted to the church starts with, there's a holy God whom you have offended by your sin and there's judgment that is coming if you don't repent. That's a bitter word. And indeed, the message of the gospel has to start with that bad news. The seventh trumpet that we'll see in chapter 11, verse 15 and following The angel referred to this in verse 7 is clearly the full, final judgment of God upon the wicked. He says the mystery of God will be fulfilled. And that means that the plan that he's revealed to his people will come to final fruition. A great place that 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 plan is summarized is in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10 where he says that his plan from the beginning of creation, from before the foundation of the world, was for all things to be summed up under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So when he says the mystery will be fulfilled, he's not leaving us in doubt about what that means. He's telling us the purposes of God to bring all of creation and history to the place of of submission Uh, and, and subjection to the Lord Jesus is about to happen. So the seventh trumpet is clearly the full and final judgment of God. It will carry with it the unbridled wrath of God upon the rebellion and idolatry of human beings who have not repented of their sin and turned to Christ in faith. It is a hard word. It makes the stomach bitter. To have to stand in front of peoples and nations and kings and say, repent or judgment is coming. That is not an easy word. Oh, but it's not only bitter. 
Praise God, the message he's given us doesn't stay there. It is sweet, sweeter than you can possibly imagine. The message that God has entrusted to the church, which we are responsible to steward faithfully, begins with the bad news of human sin and divine judgment, but it proceeds to the good news of divine grace and human restoration. If you'll acknowledge your sin and if you'll draw near to God in repentance and humility and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ in his life and death and resurrection, you'll be saved. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the promise of God. That is the word that he's entrusted to his church. So when he tells John, you will prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings, I believe he says by extension to his church, you in this broken world, among these nations who are rife with idolatry and unbelief and ideologies that are not only insane, but are godless. This is the context in which we live. We are to carry the bitter word of coming judgment followed by the sweet word of mercy and forgiveness and restoration in Christ. It's bitter, but it's good. There's bitterness and there's sweetness in the word that he's given us. So I think chapter 10 answers that question. What's the church doing during this age while God's temporal judgments are falling upon the unbelieving world? I think the message of chapter 10 is the church is proclaiming the word of God. The church is acting as God's prophet to the nations. We're building up the people of God with the word of God and we're announcing to the world. There's judgment coming, but there's an ark of safety in Christ if you'll trust in him. One of my favorite hymns growing up was by Fanny Crosby called Rescue the Perishing. I'm going to conclude by just reading to you the second verse of this hymn. It says, though they are slighting him, still he is waiting. Waiting the penitent child to receive. Plead with them earnestly. Plead with them gently. He will forgive if they only believe. May we be faithful in stewarding this message, carrying it to the world around us who desperately needs to hear. Let's pray.